when I was growing up, we spent every Christmas in Abilene, Texas. That's where my grandparents lived, out in West Texas. It was a six-hour drive from Conroe up to Abilene, where we'd go and spend about a week uh, during the holidays. Well, one year, I was maybe seven years old. We were driving up to Abilene for Christmas, and our car broke down about two hours outside. And thankfully, we were close to a service station, but the service station was about to close up for the night. So they took in our vehicle. We got all our stuff, all our presents out, our luggage. They took the vehicle in to be serviced, but then they locked up and went home, leaving us, literally leaving us out in the cold. And so my mom called my grandfather on a payphone. We called him Big Daddy. And she told him where we were, and Big Daddy said, I'm coming. But y'all, we spent about two hours that night in the dark, in the bitter cold, outside that service station, waiting for him. And I can remember, like it was yesterday, my parents took my sister and me, and they squeezed us into this brick corner of the service station so that they could shield us from the wind and try to keep us warm while we waited. And of course, eventually Big Daddy showed up and rescued us. Um, So I I often reflect on that experience. It's burned into my memory. But now that I'm a parent, now that I'm a grown-up, I have to imagine that my parents were very worried, extremely anxious. Without a vehicle exposed in the cold, who knows what could have happened. Y'all, this was pre-cell phone. This was like 1989, 1990, before cell phones. What if Big Daddy couldn't find the service station? How would we have been able to get in touch with him? But as a kid... I had no worries at all. I felt totally secure in that moment. I was a little cold, a little uncomfortable, but I was absolutely secure. I was secure in my parents, who I knew would protect me. I was confident that my grandfather was going to be there, just like he said he would. And I knew that my mama was going to have a warm apple pie waiting for us at the house whenever we finally got there, right? I had no insecurities at all in that moment. I knew I was okay. Well, y'all, last week we read from John chapter 10. Jesus paints this wonderful picture, one of the most beautiful pictures in the whole Bible. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And so what we discussed last week, we, we, by faith in Jesus, we become the sheep of his pasture. We are known, we are loved, we are saved by the kindness and the grace of of Christ. Well, now today, right after that discussion in John 10, we encounter uh, another facet of the same gem, a related truth, but one that, that builds on the truth from last week, and it's this. Y'all, we, we've seen this, and we talk about this every Sunday. By God's grace, we are saved. By God's grace, we become sheep under the hand of a good shepherd. And, and we'll see this today, and By the same grace, we are kept secure. We are not only saved, but we are kept in the grace of God. We cannot be lost or forsaken again. And this is a point I found as a pastor, and I I feel it personally, this is a point that a lot of people struggle with, this sense of security in the grace of God. And so there are other issues that arise in the Scripture today, but we're going to focus mainly, most heavily, on this one, asking the question and hopefully delivering a firm answer. How secure are you as a child of God? 
If you have trusted Jesus Christ, are you secure in him? And so where we are in this narrative, y'all, what we saw at the very end of last week's scripture, verses 17, 18, Jesus makes a claim to have the authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. He is not going to be an unwilling victim on the cross. He is coming for the sake of the cross. He will lay down his own life and he will rise from the grave again victorious. Now that's not a small claim. That's basically the center of everything we believe and hope in, Jesus' death and resurrection. And so the, the crowd is going to respond to that claim about like what we'd expect. If you've been walking through John with us, we're going to get the same response that we always get from the crowd, more or less. And we see it in verse 19. Chapter 10, verse 19, a division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? So some of the people are convinced that Jesus is either crazy or evil or both. And many believe he's both. Others are more rational about this. Jesus is clearly in his right mind. Clearly he's good rather than evil. And he obviously has miraculous power to support what he says, to support this sense of his goodness and purity. Everybody has seen the outcome of this. We're right on the heels of what happened back in chapter 9 when Jesus gave sight to a man who was born blind. And because there's a division as to what's really true about this man, the Jews do what they've always done now. They try to paint him into a corner to get to the bottom of things. Verse 22, at that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. This is Hanukkah, by the way. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. So the, the Jewish leaders actually make a good point here in some sense. Jesus did not go around in public declaring, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah. Of course, he does say it elsewhere. We've seen him say it throughout John in different contexts, but Jesus is not giving the Jewish leaders what they're asking for. See, what they wanted was a plain, loud, public declaration, not so that they could believe in him and follow him but so that they could have grounds to convict him. If he said publicly, I am the Christ, well then, case closed, right? He's blaspheming. But Jesus is clear in his response. He doesn't give them what they want, but he tells them, you've already got all the information you need. I already told you. In a dozen different ways, Jesus has told us who he is. And he says, I've also shown you my works. Not just my words, but also my miracles what I do in the Father's name. My works bear witness to me as well, both word and work. But you do not believe. And Jesus gives them the grounds or the reason for their unbelief 
He says, you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. And y'all, this is, again, a recurring theme in John. The unbelief of these men is not for lack of information. They don't lack information. It's a matter of deep-rooted identity and denial. Jesus says, you don't believe me, you don't hear me, you don't know me, because you are not of my sheep. Ultimately, that's their problem. You are not of my sheep. You don't belong to me. But then Jesus turns around and states it positively too. See, that's the negative side of things. That's the reason that the, that the unbelievers, the Jewish leaders, are so antagonistic. But then Jesus shows the difference here as to why he came to separate out fact from fiction, to show what true belief really means. And it means so much more than what these men assumed. These are the religious leaders. By all accounts, they've got everything figured out and put in its nice proper category. And yet they don't know the one person they need to know. They've rejected him. So Jesus says, what's the difference? Look at verse 27. This is so good. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. When Jesus speaks of his sheep, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. There's no escaping the intimacy, the personal relationship filling those words. Jesus speaks in intimate terms. Y'all, there's no casual relationship when it comes to Jesus. It was never intended to be that way. And I think oftentimes we, when we hear the word belief, we come to a, an understanding of that word that's far less than what Jesus intended. We're thinking a lot of times of cognitive belief only. That I believe in a fact that is true, but it never penetrates into my heart and my life. And so for some people, the, the sense of I believe in Jesus really carries the same meaning as I believe that George Washington was a good president. But the difference is critical. It's not merely cognitive. We don't just believe things about Jesus. We receive and trust the person of Jesus. Or as Jesus puts it elsewhere in John, we don't just hear his words, we hear his voice. We come to know him and are known by him. Now, it's important that we know facts about Jesus. It's important that we understand what the Scripture says about him and all that he did. But that's not enough. We're called to know him, and we're given that gift in the gospel. And so, in verse 28, when Jesus speaks of the relationship with his disciples, he tells us the grounds, the reason we can know him in this way. Jesus says, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
That's the ground, but it also comes with a promise itself. You see that? And y'all, this is something, again, we talk about this every single Sunday here at Harvest. We are joyfully redundant because Jesus was redundant on this point right here. Look at that word give. I give eternal life to them. It's a gift. It's not something that you and I can earn. I give eternal life to my sheep. And y'all, this is, this is really the central point for us when we speak on this issue of security. How do I know that I'm secure in Christ? How do I know that He will keep me as a child of God and as a Christian? Y'all, here's how we know. If salvation is a divine gift from God's Son, then it cannot be something that you and I earn or deserve. And therefore, it's something that we cannot unearn or undeserve or lose. And this is why Jesus says, y'all, in no uncertain terms, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. Now, we can put common sense to what Jesus means here. To never perish is not speaking about physical death. We all physically die. But there's something that the Bible calls the second death. That that is the death of judgment for our sins. And that is the death that no Christian will face. By no means is it possible we will never perish in that sense. Uh, Just a few chapters earlier, Jesus, again to the crowd, to the Jewish leaders, made this statement, and it's something that we ought to memorize and hold dear in our hearts. John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Which means if you have trusted Christ, y'all, if you have trusted in Jesus, God is not keeping all your sins on reserve somewhere. They're out of the way temporarily, but they're being kind of kept warm, kept on hold, just so God can make sure that you remain worthy. Just so God can make sure that you live up to all the right standards Otherwise, God can pull the cork out and let all that sin flood back into your life and hold you accountable for it. Y'all, a lot of us, we live in in kind of a subconscious way. We live that way. Yes, I know God forgives me, but, but I've got to do my part now to maintain that forgiveness or else there's a button with my name on it, blinking red up in heaven. Y'all, that's not how this goes that we are not worthy of forgiving. We never were in the first place. And so when Jesus says, if you have trusted me, you have eternal life, your judgment is not on hold somewhere, on reserve somewhere. It's been eradicated altogether. It's been forgiven and it's been forgotten. There is no longer a threat of judgment and death because Jesus Himself bore our judgment on the cross. He died in your place. And so as a believer, you have passed out of death once and for all and into life. 
And now Jesus builds on this here in John 10. It's not just (laughs) that we've passed out of death and into life, as if that wouldn't be enough. But then he, he doubles up on the promise. Look at this. Jesus also says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one means no one. No one includes you. You can't snatch yourself away from Jesus somehow. If you are in the hand of Jesus Christ, no one can now take you away from him. And y'all, this goes up to the highest authority among our enemies. Even Satan himself does not have the authority, the power, to take you away from the saving hand of Christ. And just in case that's not sufficient for us to trust in Jesus' own hand to keep us, look at verse 29. My Father, who has given the sheep to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So Jesus is he's tying some things together here. Things that he said elsewhere earlier in this gospel. This, this, I never understood this. I still don't fully understand it. But Jesus has said now, for multiple times, he said, the Father gives the sheep to me. In some eternal sovereign, divine way, the Father gives us as a gift to His Son. And then in due course, Jesus gives us the gift of life in His name. And so it makes sense that Jesus would show us this, the Father and the Son fulfilling this mission of salvation and security together. Jesus holds us in His hand And the Father holds us in His hand. No one is greater than the Father, and so no one by no means is able to snatch us away from Him. That's how secure we are. Now, I know whenever we we talk on this issue, because it's a big issue, and there are a great many scriptures that speak to it, questions tend to come up. Questions of our own sense of worthiness. I know that's what Jesus said, but I don't feel that in my heart. Questions of other scriptures. Maybe we come across other scriptures that seem to cause doubt about our security. Or maybe we can think of scenarios, people that we know who once walked with Jesus but no longer appear to be. That's all too much for one sermon. And so let me just say, y'all, I'm your pastor, not just your preacher. Come find me. I'm not hard to find. It's not that big of a church. I stand right there at the end. Come find me. Text me, email me. We'll have coffee together or lunch. You know my policy. You pay, I'll pray, all right? <laughs> I would be thrilled to talk with you more about this. And certainly, if, it would do, if, if, if you are not at ease with this discussion of the security of those who trust in Jesus, you need to be. Come find me or one of our elders or pastors, and we will talk with you. We'd love to. But y'all, just for today, in the context of chapter 10, here's the bottom line. If you have truly believed in Jesus, if you have trusted Christ from the heart for His saving grace, then you are just as secure as He is. You cannot be lost or forsaken unless He is a liar or a failure. Those are the only options. If Jesus is everything we say He is and He said He was, then we are secure because He is the eternal God. 
Everything that God has promised to us has already been achieved and sealed and secured by his own son. And therefore, if you are in his hand, you are there to stay. And if we really begin to believe this, y'all, not only does it bring comfort to the weary soul, but it also acts as fuel to the fire of our devotion. Some people will say, if we really believe that we're totally secure, we'll become lazy and complacent. I'll begin to think, I don't need to do anything because Jesus will save me no matter what. And y'all, that is absolutely wrong. If you really believed that God loved you this much, you'd give everything to him. If I really believe that I'm that secure in the grace of Jesus Christ, there would not be a lazy bone in my body. I would love him with everything I have. Because he's loved me with everything. If you are secure, then you become a disciple. There's nothing about you complacent. Now, as, as Jesus makes such, such significant claims, the response becomes more and more antagonistic. Right? We've already seen at one place in John chapter 8, the Jews got so angry that they picked up stones to throw at him and put him to death. When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, it doesn't go well. Look at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. So the Jews did understand Jesus, at least on this point. They understood what he was claiming to be. He was not an exalted man or an impressive man or a great teacher. He is God. And because they understand that claim, they're so overcome with murderous rage that they pick up stones to kill him on the spot. That's how close they are to just going ahead and trying to get rid of him. Because you, being a mere man, make yourself out to be God. And y'all, Jesus has a really interesting response to this. As these men prepare to kill him, verse 34, Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken... Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? That's confusing, okay? But what Jesus is doing, he's making a reference to Psalm 82, where God speaks to the judges of Israel, the high-ranking men of authority in Israel, and God calls them gods with a lowercase g, not to declare them divine in any way, but to express that God has exalted them to a high position for a very special work. Although if you read Psalm 82, you realize that God is disappointed in these shepherds. They have failed in their high calling. But Jesus is, what he's doing here in John 10, he's using that scripture to make an argument from the lesser to the greater. If there are men in the scripture who are called gods... And we all agree that the scripture is true and authoritative. It can't be broken. Well, how much more then 
should we say of the one whom the Father set apart and sent into the world, that he is the Son of God? There's no blasphemy involved in a statement like that. Now, Jesus is not intentionally trying to confuse them. He's really, he's in a sense, kind of beating them at their own game. These are the men who claim to know and love the Scripture more than anybody. And so Jesus is kind of revealing in them some hypocrisy. But here's the important thing to note. At no point does Jesus retract his words or back down from its statement. This might be the point where Jesus would need to clarify, hold on now, you've misunderstood me. I didn't mean I'm the Son of God like the Son of God. If he wanted to save his own skin, he could have done that, but he didn't. He continued to press on these men all the more. And he clarifies to them that their unbelief is insanity. They think he's insane, but really they're the ones who can't see what's right in front of them. Look at verse 37. If I do not do the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, though you don't believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. Translation, if Jesus does not do God's works, neither is he speaking God's words, because both are married together. If he's not doing the works, then you shouldn't believe in the words either. But look, Jesus says, look, the lame walk, the blind see, the sick are healed, the lost are saved. Both Jesus' works and his words are testimony to his oneness with the Father. And yet, rather than these men believing in him, they're seeking all the more to do him harm. They try to kill him, but they're unsuccessful. John has told us elsewhere because Jesus' hour had not yet come. The sovereign Father had not yet decreed that it was time for his son to die. That would come at the cross, not yet. And so their intentions were to harm, but they couldn't yet do it. Now, that's kind of a downer. How's this chapter going to end? Much more joyful. Look at the last few verses. Verse 40. So Jesus went away from them again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in Jesus there. Y'all, back in the first three chapters of this gospel, John the Baptist was pointing people away from himself and on to Jesus instead. He kept pointing people to Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was his proclamation. And now, several chapters later, as these people observe in the light of John's testimony, many believed in Christ there. And it's such an incredible way for this chapter to end because it's the fulfillment of both realities. Those who are not of my sheep will not believe, but those who are of my sheep, those who come to faith, we see them right here. What Jesus is saying about the sheep has now been fulfilled at the end of the chapter. 
These people who are believing, these are the people of whom Jesus said, they hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them. The hardness of heart we just witnessed now gives way to the sweetness of faith. And so y'all, as we close here, think back with me now to seven-year-old me shivering in that corner in the dark and the cold outside that service station in the middle of nowhere, Texas. And yet I felt totally secure, totally calm, totally, I mean, uncomfortable, cold, probably had to use the restroom. I mean, there were a lot of factors going on probably with me, but I was totally secure in that moment. And I wonder how. And of course, now that I'm able years later to, to reflect on that experience, I know my security had nothing to do with me. Nothing about me gave me any confidence in that moment. I certainly could have saved myself. I didn't have money for a payphone. I didn't even know how to work one. I didn't know Big Daddy's number. I didn't know where I was. There was nothing in me that brought me that sense of confidence. I was completely dependent on the love and the strength of those who cared for me. Now, how much more Secure are you and I in the hand of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Who can snatch you away from Him? Who can bring back on your head the sin debt that He has already canceled out on the cross? How could you unearn what you never earned to begin with? If your security depends on you, you will never be secure at all. And some of us can speak firsthand on that. If your security depends on you, you will never know what it is to feel secure. If your acceptability before God depends on your ability to keep His law and uphold His righteousness, then you will always be chasing after an unattainable goal. And frankly, it's something that will crush you along the way because none of us can live up to the perfect righteousness of God. But if you've looked upon Jesus Christ, if you've trusted Him for His saving grace, then you are now more fully secure and more freely accepted than you can dare to imagine. Because you do not depend on yourself. And God most certainly does not depend on you. We depend on Him and the strength of His hand and the power of His grace and the certainty of His promises. And so let's close this morning with a great little verse from a hidden letter in the New Testament. You'd miss it if you blinked. There's a little letter called Jude right there toward the end. And at the end of Jude, we're given this proclamation and promise. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, 
and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning I pray that you will plant these seeds of your truth to the deepest place of our hearts. Father, we, there are some things that remain a mystery to us that we may not fully grasp until we meet you face to face. I pray, Lord, that this is something that is not a mystery, but a place of great hope and confidence and assurance. If we are of your sheep, by faith, then we will never perish. You will lose none of those you have saved. And no one can snatch us away from your gracious hand. Father, if, if those words are true, and they are, then Father, will you sustain us with a confidence that is unshakable, Will you sustain us, Lord, with gratitude and joy and gladness of heart that you have loved us this much? Lord, not just to save us and give us a new start, but in the end it falls back on our shoulders. But you have saved us completely to the uttermost so that in the ages to come, the glories and the riches of your grace will be poured out upon us without measure forever. That is your promise to us, Father. I pray that we will believe it. We will believe you. And Father, I pray by faith you will, you will um, sever anything in our hearts that comes to that false conclusion, if I'm secure, then I can just sit back and do whatever I want. That, Lord, if there's anything in us that, that desires laziness or complacency, that you will purge it from our hearts. It is not of Jesus Christ. And instead, Lord, you will fuel the flame of our devotion. If you love us this much, if we are this secure in your hand, then, Lord, make us wholehearted disciples. Make it, make it true of us, Lord, that we hear the voice of Jesus and he knows us and we follow him. We follow him. Lord, let there never be one day where we mistake resting in Christ for spiritual laziness. But that, Lord, our rest in Jesus would spur us on to great fruitfulness. Lord, do that in my heart right now, please. Do it for us. And for your name's sake, let us be a people 
who are so confident in Jesus that we walk every moment in his light, never again in darkness. Thank you that this is your promise given to us as a gift. In Christ's awesome name we pray. Amen.